I'm out of breath as well, but it's, it's, it's from Thanksgiving. <laughs> Similar feeling, I think. Well, good morning, everybody. First time I remember my desire to achieve something awesome, I mean really awesome, was the second grade. My teacher had given me a very important responsibility. So there were three sets of windows in our classroom, and we needed to decorate them for Easter, back in the day when you could do stuff like that. And, and those three teams that had been created by the teacher, which also meant three leaders. And I was chosen as one of those favored people. This was going to be a shining moment for me. I mean, this, I mean, think about this. This group of people who would win this competition, we would go down in the history books of Pine Brook Elementary School as one of the most creative and, and intelligent and talented groups of kids that had ever graced those halls. Now, my particular leadership skills at the time amounted to not much more than uh, being able to boss the other kids around. But that was enough for the teacher to recognize me and to give me this illustrious honor. Now, I knew right from the start that I was going to lead my team to victory. I knew that there would be no third-rate design and there would be no second-place effort. We were going to win. We would leave it all on the field we would reign victorious. Now, this is probably when I should have realized that I was going to have a lifetime struggle with achievement issues. But of course I did not because I was in second grade. It's also a brutal reality for many of us that many of the soundtracks that we we wrestle with to this day were things that, that our culture and our personalities and the people around us all conspired to reinforce, often trying to do the very best they could, but often with unintended consequences. And that means every person here has been given or has created soundtracks that have shaped our lives. And some of these soundtracks have helped us succeed and some of them have helped us survive and some of them have not been quite so gracious or generous to us. Others we've carried around like these lead blocks sort of rattling around in our heads, exhausting and causing fear in us. And so we're coming now to the end of our soundtrack series. Today is the very last week in the series and what I'm going to do is uh, kind of bring all of them together for you. We're going to offer a quick overview, sort of uh, create a model for you of the Soundtracks series, and then we're going to give you a case study, which we, were, we have a little planning team that was working on this series and this particular message, and they decided that the case study should be a personal example from my life, which sounded really cool like three, four weeks ago, and today it doesn't sound quite so cool. Uh, but since that's what it is, that's where we're at, that's what we're going to do, and so I guess we're going to see how that all goes. Because for my own personal journey, we're going to get to see 
how what I also think to be a very wonderful uh, and, uh, and, and great friend to me throughout the years has also been quite a pernicious and sly enemy. So the, the, the series itself has largely summarized these. Uh, each week we spent a time, a time looking at one or two of these key ideas. If, you, if any of them strike your fancy in a particular way, you can go back and uh, take a look at them. But we started with this idea of don't trust your brain. Now, if you just did this, you'd already be much further ahead than most of us are when it comes to dealing with our soundtracks. Right, the quote that uh, we really kind of jumped on at the beginning was from John Acuff when he says, your brain can be a jerk, which makes absolutely no sense because you would think that your brain would, would always have your best interests. But of course, if you did that, you would be thinking wrong, which is kind of the problem because the thoughts are coming from the very thing that can't always be trusted. Because the reality is we have these broken soundtracks that, that often haunt us even terrorize us. And there are soundtracks of lost loves and missed opportunities and, and hurt feelings and embarrassing moments and all of the shame and the rejection and the fear that all keep underscoring the narrative of our lives. And so we can't always trust the brain. And then we said, you got to take ownership of your thoughts. And now, now, this is kind of a nice straightforward idea. You're giving real estate to thoughts in your brain, but, but, but they're, not, they're not paying rent or mortgage or anything. They're just taking up real estate and they have not been given permission to do that. But we have not yet always wrestled with the reality that our thoughts are not in control. They're a part of us. We can control and shape them. And so we said it's important for us to take ownership of your thoughts and one of the, the beautiful verses about this is in 2 Corinthians where we, it says to take every thought captive. Every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And that's really been one of our key mantras over the whole of this series. Every thought, grab it, seize it, drag it into the light, and then make it obedient to our Savior. Now, after that, you can begin to interrogate your thoughts. I mean, really give them the third degree. And the categories that we spoke about start with the very simple one, is it true? The scriptures here are going to be one of your great friends. But you can dispute the facts. You can ask, is this really what God thinks? And you can actually bring other people into this. Get a second opinion. Ask your spouse whether these things are actually true. Ask an expert. Read a book. Try to figure out if these things are true. And so much of what we actually believe uh, and the things that we have, the tracks we have in our head aren't even true. Now, there's also a part of this that's important, which is we talk about it as pulling the thread. So sometimes you're going to have a soundtrack kicking around in your head that is true, but it's based on something that is false. And so if you have a, a narrative in your head about what happiness looks like, and then you look at your life and you go, well, obviously I'm not happy, but your understanding of what happiness is is wrong, then it doesn't matter if you're not happy according to a lie. And this works in, in so many areas of, of our lives is we've got to pull the thread a little bit and try to figure out what is the thought behind the thought, what's under it. 
and follow that thread a little bit and you might be surprised that what is in fact true on the surface is not true because it's based on something that is wrong. Then we said, all right, if, it's, if it is true, you can still ask, is it helpful? And a whole lot of other categories of things fall into this. It, isn't, it is true, but in fact, it's not helping you accomplish what it is you hope to accomplish, be who you want to be, become more transformed into the image of Jesus. And at that point, they're not going to be helpful for you. And so even those soundtracks should be challenged and rewritten, right? So maybe you really did do something wrong uh, on that first date or during that interview. Maybe you're endlessly now thinking about it and you're beating yourself up for it over and over and over. That's not helpful. It might actually be true. And it might be good for you to stop and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't do those things in the future. But as you continue to go over them again and again and again and again and again, you can stop and say, wait a second, this isn't being helpful anymore. And then, of course, kind. And this is a tough one, because when I hear this, I'm always kind of like, I don't know, it's just like, this feels like giving yourself an excuse, you know, to kind of like take it easy on yourself. And I'd rather like, you know, let's kind of man up and do it right and all this kind of stuff. But like, but this is, I think, one of the more nuanced, but also one of the more powerful truths. You know, maybe it is true that, in fact, you did not treat her right. Or you lost that relationship because you said some very, very stupid things. Or maybe you got fired from the job, and maybe it's, you know, it's true that, that you were lazy or that you were deceitful. And, and maybe you look at that and you go, ah, oh, over and over and over. So you know what, it might be true and it might be helpful for you to look at that and go, maybe I shouldn't be like that anymore and this is a good thing for me to work on. But if you continue constantly beat yourself up over it, it's simply mean. And the great principle here is to ask, how would your friends treat you if you were saying the same things to them with the frequency that you say it to yourself? And at some point you go, you know, my friends wouldn't even tolerate that anymore. They would just go, dude, you're just so mean. Like, yeah, I mean, you have a right, you're, you know, you're, what you're saying might be right. And it, it was helpful like the first couple times we talked about it, but now you're just being mean. You're constantly reminding me about these things. And yet we, we can be meaner to ourselves than any of our friends would ever tolerate or that we would ever think is right when it comes to friendships and the people that we care about. And yet we do it to ourselves all the time. And then you got to make a plan to turn down the dial. I had a little dial over here. We were showing how you can turn it down, you can turn it up. It's not a switch. Don't think you're going to throw a switch and all of these soundtracks are going to disappear and be rewritten. That is simply not the way they work. It is more helpful to come up with a plan so that you can take anything that is not true or anything that is not kind, anything that is not helpful, and you can turn down the dial on those thoughts, but you can also turn them up on the thoughts that are, in fact, the soundtracks that are, in fact, better for you. And so, you know, we talked about needing to retire old soundtracks. You may have some things that you've been carrying around and just get, they're done. It's time to, to send them off and retire them and be done. And every time they show up again, go ahead and retire them again. And you'll have all sorts of strategies that we discussed over this series as to ways that you could do that. And then you've got to replace them, replace them with things that are rooted in what is actually true and what God really does think of you and, and, and replaced with a new story about who you are, about where you're heading. And then we talk about repeating them because the, the, the soundtracks that you have already embraced, you have said, you have repeated time and again, not 10 times, not 100 times, sometimes thousands of times, which means you have ingrained these neural pathways 
metaphorically, but also literally. You have, you have worked these, these neural pathways into these well-worn routes, and you need to, to undo that, and you're going to do that by repeating your new gospel mantras and other techniques over and over and over and over again until the repetition becomes your new habit and, in fact, a new soundtrack. And in that time, you'll be able to live in the power of better gospel soundtracks. And that's our hope and our prayer, is that we will be able to live in these better gospel soundtracks. Romans 12, 2 captures this idea, I think, pretty beautifully. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's, uh, let's abandon the soundtracks of this world and embrace new soundtracks and let them renew our minds. And when we renew our minds, we will be transformed so much so that we will be able to discern God's will better and better and better. His perfect plan for you, for the people around you, for his world, for his children. You'll be, you will be more and more dialed in as you are watching these better gospel soundtracks transform your heart, your mind, your will. All right, so that's the model. If you guys wanted to take that whole model and apply those things to your soundtracks, that will give you every tool, many of the tools, a whole lot of the tools, steps that maybe you never had before that will help you rewrite soundtracks into, be into better gospel soundtracks. Now, by way of case study, for me, this idea of don't trust your brain actually is super helpful. This has been something that over the course of my life, it took me a long time to even get to the point where I would question my own thoughts, where I would, would, would not just simply assume that if I had the thought, it must be a good thought, it must be, be right. And so uh, for much of my life, whatever ran through my head, whatever was in my brain, I didn't evaluate it or notice it, it was just there. You know, like the weather, it was just there. And I never said, I'm not sure you deserve that real estate. I'm not sure you're, you're, you're you know, carrying your own weight in there. I don't know that, that you know, you're, you deserve the right to be taking up that kind of mental real estate. As for my second grade experience and achievement, it was only years later that I recognized that my culture at the time that I was a part of, my own personality, my family of origin, they all, and pretty much every single teacher I had ever had rewarded me for achievement. That's how I got recognized. That's how I got affirmation. Many of us have that, a similar experience. Every time you do something right, you, you succeed in some way, everyone around you goes, you're good, you're awesome, man, that's fantastic. Which, of course, continues to motivate us to kind of do what we want, but all of these things conspired inside of me to make it so that my identity was increasingly wrapped up in my ability to achieve things. And that really became one of my dominant 
soundtracks. Even though I wouldn't have used this language at the time, but my, my identity increasingly became wrapped up in what I was able to achieve. Now, here's the thing. It is a small step from my identity is in what I achieve to thinking that if I'm celebrated when I achieve success, also not questioned, whatever that was, then it's also possible that I could be a disappointment when I don't succeed. It's not a far jump for a young mind to make where failure ends up becoming the thing that makes me a disappointment in the eyes of the people around me that I'm looking for affirmation from. Now, I'm not sure that anyone ever said anything close to that to me personally, but, and some of you have a different story, but, I, but for me, that somehow got rooted in my brain. Now, another memory comes to mind. I was in grade school, and I wanted to help move a huge pile of rocks across the, the street from my, our yard into the woods. And, and you know, I, it was a giant wheelbarrow full. It was way past my, my strength of what I could do. But I wanted to do it. I wanted to help. I wanted to show I could do it. And uh, so I tried to do it. And you know what uh, some of my family members said, is you can guess what they said. You can't do it. You're, you're never going to do it. And I was like, Psh, yeah, right. So, you know, I hustle over. I grab it. I get it halfway across the road, and I lose control. Boom. Whole thing in the middle of the road pours out all over the place. And what do you think, what do you think the, the family members jumped in on? I told you, you couldn't do it. I told you, I got so angry and I lost control of my emotions, <laughs> made quite the scene and started crying in the middle of the street about this pile of rocks. So much so that a neighbor saw this whole scene unfolding and he ran over to help me put all the rocks back in the wheelbarrow. And I was like, this, is, I, this guy, he has a special place in my heart to this day. Because like, he met me in this moment of utter weakness and despair and self-loathing and all of those kinds of things. It was a stupid wheelbarrow. It was not so stupid back then. It cut deep. Another time I was in school, I came home with a report card. I had all A's and one B. Hey, that's great. Great work, man. This is so good. You work real hard. Hey, so what do you think we can do about the B? I was like, oh, I see how things are going here. You could do great in everything. In that one area where you didn't do perfect, that's what gets noticed. That's what you see. Now, keep in mind, I didn't have like a, a crazy family like this. It wasn't like, you know, there wasn't, they weren't driving all of this. It's just the things that they would say like that, I would always remember because of a whole other host of different things in my life and people around me and my own personality and whatever it might be. That wasn't the general tenor of my home, but these are the memories that end up shaping so much of my story. I'm in youth group, hardly a shining example of Christianity. I had no real surrendered life, but I had an outgoing personality that was not afraid to tell people what to do. Youth leaders decided that was enough to put me in leadership. And as I became more involved in leadership, the whole process of affirmation continued. So it didn't matter where I turned, this would feed into this compulsive desire to achieve success. 
Now, you can look throughout your story like this, look at the arc, and you can begin to see some of these kinds of patterns. When I was in college, I was given another opportunity to lead a team. Stakes were much higher. Third or half of our grade for the quarter. Hundreds of hours of work went into this project. Thousands of dollars went into this project. We were killing ourselves. I was team leader. We show up at the day for the public unveiling. And based on what everyone else had done, it was clearly inferior work. And I had led my team to this humiliating moment. Now, because I was in architecture school at the time, it's all very public. And so the teacher decided to publicly critique and to just to tear the work down on every front, in front of everyone. And of course, everyone on my team and everyone in the class and the teacher, they're looking at one person. Right? My whole team's like, yeah, that's what, that's what we thought too, but he, you know, he, he made us do this. And so there I was just taking all of this and, experience. and he was like, it's barely sea work. Barely sea work. I took a quiz when I got to seminary. Very, very first class, it was a Greek class. I'm terrible at the languages. And I, I mastered the material, I worked harder, stayed up all night, days on end. I, I knew this material, I took this quiz, I got a one out of 10. One out of 10, you shouldn't even show up. Like that's even, like I, I wish it was zero out of 10, at least I could have said I studied the wrong chapter or something. Like I don't, like one out of 10, that's really, and I knew, I thought I'd known it. And, and so I took that, that, that quiz and I circled it with a big red marker and I stuck it on my bulletin board where I studied every day. That was going to be my motivation for the rest of school, the rest of my masters. A failure was going to be used to motivate me so that I would work harder and do better next time. So whether it was school or home or church, everyone celebrated accomplishments and I continued to wrap up my identity and my ability to succeed and achieve. Now, I also just never noticed that success Whatever that meant was never challenged, right? This poster hung on my wall when I was a kid. Justification for higher education. The big house, over the cliff, the, the sunset, the fancy cars. This is actually the 1980s version that was hanging on my wall. I think they've updated the cars uh, in new posters. But this is what my family, my friends, my teachers were all pointing toward. This was success. That was never challenged by anyone around me at the time. Now, to take ownership of my thoughts, I knew at some point, right, that I was simply going to have to work very, very hard to get to where I wanted. I've never been the smartest guy in the room, so if I was going to win this game of life and succeed in whatever that meant, I was going to have to make up with it for a whole ton, with a whole ton of hard work. That leads to all sorts of other issues with, you know, your family and workaholism and your own uh, self-worth and all of that. But it was okay because at the time, that sort of obsessive hard work fueled my achievement desires. Because every time you, you worked real hard and you got somewhere, it just, it, it fed into this whole idea. So I had pursued this dream of becoming an architect, of building that house on a cliff uh, somewhere looking over the water, and I chased that dream for about six years or so. But around that same time, I was starting to come back to faith, and another dream started kicking around inside my heart. 
I started thinking maybe it, the, the house on the hill isn't what success is about, but the, but the divine city on a hill is what success ought to look like. And I started making this transition and started questioning, challenging this assumption of what success was all about. Which was great because it actually did lead me in a whole other direction. I started questioning the whole materialism uh, trap that I had been kind of wrapped up in and all of that, that kind of stuff. Now, that was a great breakthrough in so many ways for me. It, it freed me and liberated and rewrote some soundtracks. But I didn't really understand this whole idea of pulling the thread at the time. And I wish I had because if I had pulled the thread, I would have recognized that the success narrative was one soundtrack but the achievement one was a darker one. I mean, it was, it was fueling everything, and so in that way, I love it, and then and, and there's no way that, that I would actually continue to do the things that I had done and achieve the things that I have achieved and build the things that I was able to build over the years without it, but there's a dark side to it. And I had never unraveled it enough or chased the thread at that time to see that. And so as I was kind of you know, uh, taking ownership of my thoughts and, and taking, you know, challenging this narrative about success, I, what I really needed more of was to interrogate my thoughts more fully and completely. So I had this new definition of success. It was great. I decided to pursue ministry instead of the trappings of cultural success, but I had brought my obsession with achievement right into ministry unchallenged. It, it, never, it never made it to the, to the surface in a way that seemed like anything but awesome for what I needed to do in ministry. So fast forward a few years. We start, uh, I have my first pastorate. We do some awesome stuff. I, I st we start Beacon. We're about five years into Beacon and everything is up and to the right. You know, everything, everyone's like, yay, this is great. We celebrate these things, and man, you guys are doing great. And yeah, 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 I know. It's fantastic. God's blessing. You know, we, we, we baptize and Christianize a whole lot of this stuff. And then around year six or seven, things went flat. We had no growth that month, the next month. By the third month of no growth, growth everything was kind of like going a little bit flat. I was starting to joke around with a few of my friends and some of the leaders. I'm like, hey, this isn't good, you know. If this doesn't get turned around, we're probably going to have to, like, think about making some changes here at the top. Um, you know, three months, six months. Six months, I was, like, talking about it a little more often. At the meetings, I was like, hey, you know, you should actually, like, you know, I mean, you know, session plans, and this is a thing people think about and talk about. By nine months to 12 months, things had soured for me altogether. Not from my leader's perspective. They were looking at this and going, this, this is a normal cyclical part of ministry. Like, let's not be, you know, you can't always go up into the right. You might, it may not even be good to be always going up into the right. There might be seasons where you've got to do some other work and, and some seasons where there's sort of a, a corrective of what's happening. Like, you know, this is not actually a big deal. But I was, by that time, by the end of the year, I was seriously questioning whether or not I should even still be leading Beacon. And it wasn't even just whether I should be leading Beacon. I was starting to have moments where I wondered if maybe I had run my course in ministry. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was time. Maybe that, like, that was the old, those are the good years I had in me. And that was time, it was time for me now to, to, you know, move on and do some other things because, like, clearly I'm no longer achieving what I want to achieve, what I need to achieve, what I must achieve, what God wants me to achieve. And because of that, something must be fundamentally broken. Now, in hindsight, this seems ludicrous. 
but I was genuinely struggling during those months. And so I had not just struggling with my leadership at Beacon, but I had this, this internal gnawing sense of worthlessness because my identity was wrapped up. If I'm not achieving all of my goals, who am I? Who am I? So I needed to start asking some questions, interrogating my thoughts. And I started with the scriptures. I tried to figure out, what is, is this true? Am I even, is this even a rational thought that I'm having? And I went back to the scriptures and I saw that I'm loved by God, that in the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. I was part of this great creation. And before the foundation of the world, he loved me. And, and while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And that God so loved Robert that he gave his son Jesus, so that I might spend eternity with him. And I was like, wait a second, this says nothing here about your ability to, to grow a church. He just loves me. Now, this sounds like Sunday school one-on-one, I know, but this was, this was a breakthrough that needed to happen in my own heart and mind. Genuine struggles for me during that season. God's word was a key tool in helping me know that. Now, there were some things that were, in fact, helpful. The church is no longer reaching new people. That was helpful. That was a soundtrack that I needed to, to, del- to dive into. You know, let's start kicking around some ways, strategies to kind of turn things around, and maybe we lost our focus in some other areas. And so these are helpful things. But the soundtrack that said, I am loved when I am achieving things was simply not true and not helpful. And it needed to be confronted. Now, because of the wisdom needed in times like this, it was really helpful for me to spend more extended times in prayer and in solitude and in worship. I would cue up some worship songs about who I was in Christ and about his sacrifice for me. And I would spend, you know, I would listen to some of these songs on repeat over and over and over and over again in those days. And I would just let those truths just continue to wash over me and let the Spirit untangle some of these thoughts that were starting to come up uh, these soundtracks that were coming up. And then, of course, Kind. That was, uh, that was fun because this one just honestly, to me, feels like stop whining. And, and so this is the, the track that runs in my head. You're being kind to yourself? Oh, you need a little land? Like, you know, like, like come on, just stop it. And so uh, ever since I was a kid, though, this thought that I'm a disappointment when I fail lurked in the background. And it was super helpful to look at the ark and see all of those different experiences over and over and over and over again. Super helpful. But when you start to see the patterns, the anger over the wheelbarrow, the sense of uh, failure that I got when I was publicly dressed down, the lunacy of questioning 20 solid years of ministry for 12 months of flat growth, the inner turmoil that was going on, I was able to piece all of these things together and say, dude, you got, a, you got some things here you need to be working on. This isn't right. If you did this to other people, they would not, no, you would, no one would talk to you again. This isn't right. It's not kind. You're not, this, is, this is the most ungenerous kind of behavior, and you're doing it to yourself. And in those days, the Christian community can be a big help in this. My mentors, my friends, people here uh, on staff, this has been, they, they, they can be an absolutely great and powerful source. They give you permission to be kind to yourself. And there's something very valuable. It's, a credible, it's an incredible gift. 
and all sorts of great tools you can use toward this end. You know, I used uh, personality assessments for strengths and for weaknesses because you get to see your weaknesses, but you also get to see your strengths and how God wired you. Strength finders and Myers-Briggs, Taylor Johnson, the Enneagram for a while was super helpful for me um, because I'm interested in seeing and, and, and realizing with more authenticity, more honesty, who I really am. Then you've got to be able to take that into a plan to turn down the dial on the negative soundtracks and turn them up. And so, you know, for me that meant I really did need to retire this idea that my value is tied to my achievement. I had to just, I had to decide that is not a, a and you know, at first I thought, you don't want to do that, Robert, because then you're going to kind of lose your motivation and you're not going to be achieving and you're not going to be, and it's quite, quite the opposite has been true. The, the, actually, the freedom in that has allowed me to, to start to pursue things and to try to achieve things and work toward things without a whole lot of ego invested in it. I kind of think back over the years and I was like, what a heavy burden I ended up carrying for so many years unnecessarily. Whereas I still would have been able to work and, and accomplish things and achieve things largely based on, a, on better gospel truths. And so I had to replace them with things that lined up more fully and completely with what Jesus was saying. And I would repeat these things and I would write these things out and, and I, would, I would challenge them and say, all right, this isn't something. And when it comes back in, it sneaks back in. I go, okay, here, you're back again and you're trying to like hide and you're trying to create yourself in a new way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna no, we're gonna do this again. And if I have to do this, not once a day or not 30 times a day, not 100, you do it every single opportunity. And eventually, when you're doing it a thousand times a day, eventually things start to turn the corner. And then maybe it's not a thousand times a day, then maybe it's 500 times a day, and then maybe it's 100 times a day, because these things are becoming habits for you. And you repeat them over and over and over. Now, we talked during that section in the series about turndown techniques, and I wanted to tell you uh, some of the turndown techniques that I actually used. And I think these are techniques that are available to everyone. Some work better than other, others for you based on your personality and the particular soundtrack you're doing battle against. But they really did help me lay down new ones and I think they're accessible to anyone who wants to do the same. The, one of the biggest things is you gotta drag them out of the darkness and expose them to the light. That is just, you've gotta commit yourself to saying, to think about your thoughts. To take a step back and watch that, tra that crazy train go by. And, and get off the crazy train every once in a while and just take a step out and go, wow, look at all those thoughts whipping by me. What are they doing there? Why are they there? Go in there, grab them, force them into the light. Uh, for me, I talk to my friends very openly and honestly about a lot of these struggles and the persistent unwanted thoughts and, um, and that openness and that authenticity with other people being known and seen they were able to meet me in those places in very powerful ways. One time I was down south and I was taking a class about the dark side of leadership. I had read some books and other stuff and I just couldn't find my dark sides of leadership because I'm so awesome. And so, and so I, I'm reading this book and we have to come back to the class and tell them which one is our dominant dark side. And I, I legit couldn't do it. So I called Cheryl. She was back up home. I was down in Carolinas. And I was like, hey, so um, 
you know, I got this assignment. Could you help me with it? And she's like, sure. I'm like, you know, what about this? Is this me? She's like, no, that's not you. Is this me? No, that's not you. This you? She's like, no, no. I'm like, you see, we're getting toward the end. I'm like, see? Like, I don't actually, I get to go back and say, my wife acknowledges I don't have any dark sides. And I get to one in particular, something about, uh, you know, how I relate to people and how I want them to relate to my dreams and what I want to accomplish. Something about using people. And, and Cheryl was like, Oh, yeah, that's totally you. And I was like, that was a little too quick. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely you. I'm like, really? Do you really think so? Like, giving her a second to retract? And she was like, oh, come on. You don't know that about yourself? Like, uh, no. She's like, what, what is the title of your dissertation you're working on? And I gave her the title, and she's like, it sounds a whole lot like that. I was like, oh, oh she's right. She's right. That, that. Uh, inviting other people into the process, a huge, huge help. I started dedicating longer stretches of time to reading and to praying and to meditating and journaling. Meditation became much more important to me during those years of soul searching. Um, just spending time thinking about these things and ruminating on these things and, and looking at the promises that, that Jesus has, has made to me in the scriptures and even throughout my life and other things that were starting to come in. And those, it, it's like in those quiet times, it was as if my soul was trying to catch up to my body. And, and when it did it, 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 I was finding it encouraging and, and nourishing uh, in somehow uh, mystical sorts of ways, but some good things were happening. I started taking some day-long and even multi-day retreats to examine my heart and my mind and to reconnect with God. I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're like, oh, yeah, that must be convenient. I can't do that in my life. Soundtrack. Challenge that soundtrack before you're so quick um, to say you can't. I read books about solitude, about overachievers, overachievers and solitude. I read, <laughs> I read all sorts of different things like that, trying to turn the dials down and then turn them up on my good soundtracks. One of the ways is to look for the constellation of, of other items in your life, other soundtracks, right? And so for me, I noted self-care. Over the years, years ago, I was like, you know, I never take time for self-care because it isn't immediately productive. And because of that, it doesn't feel like I'm achieving anything, and it doesn't feel like if I'm not achieving anything, then why should I do it? I should cut that, those things out. And back then, I started realizing, this is quite a few years ago now, I realized like no hobbies, no things outside of work and family. I had nothing, no, no diversity in me. I wasn't practicing Sabbath or rest in any way. And I started looking at those, and I realized those are part of the same issue. I had soundtracks running that were related to my core issues, and I really did need to unpack some of those things. And so some of my turndown techniques, you know, that's when I used to, I, I, you know, I, I picked up some hobbies and I did some other things. I practiced Sabbath more regularly. And now during particularly challenging seasons, I often retreat to even more solitude and I spend even more time uh, walking beaches and listening to worship music and not working on them as much as giving myself space to be with God. When unwanted soundtracks continue to intrude, I often will write them down 
and I'll write down its better soundtrack and I will review them every day and I will memorize Bible verses that will help me toward that end and I will revisit some old verses that, that used to be encouraging to me. Again, these are all strategies that are within all of our abilities to do. You know, I tend to remember my failures way more than any of my accomplishments for my achievements. Now I've got to figure out a way to create space so that I can celebrate the work that God is actually doing in me and even through me, which isn't something I want to do. What I want to do is look for the next ground that needs to be taken. But I think you look at the scriptures and you see that that kind of a stop, that kind of a pause is valuable. And all of this allows me to live more fully, more completely in the power of better gospel presentation, well, gospel soundtracks. To live in the power of better gospel soundtracks. And this process never ends. And I want to encourage you in it. Even now, I'm already starting to, to, to work on some other soundtracks that have been running through my heart and my mind. And I'm, I'm already committing myself to doing battle against those soundtracks. You see, this isn't a process that you simply will finish one day and then you will arrive. In fact, part of the great joy of the Christian journey is that it's a journey. And I want to encourage you throughout this whole of the series, you know, we spent many weeks talking about this stuff because we recognize that this is something that every one of us struggles with. These are things that we often don't even think about, but we ought to be able to think about and ought to do battle with. And we want to invite you into this process. We want to invite you into this journey with us. Imagine what it would be like to live in the power of better gospel soundtracks every single day. You could be unwriting things and, and, and changing things that you've heard in your head since you were eight years old. You could be setting yourself up for a future of more joy and peace and rest. You, could, you know, Jesus, he tells us his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And I've never felt like the yoke was easy and burden was light. That's because it's been my yoke and my burden, not his. When I move into his realm... His burden is light. His yoke is easy. You see, this is, this is the hope and that is the dream. And that is our prayer for each and every one of us that we can increasingly live in the power of better gospel soundtracks. I hope you guys do it. I hope you take it serious. I hope you spend the time needed uh, in order to, to kind of run these paces over many, many uh, days and weeks and months and then years so that you might be more and more transformed into the image of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are asking that you would take the whole of this series and we've had a lot of challenging ideas and we've talked about a whole lot of stuff and Father, what we want is you to bring us to the place where we can look at and recognize and experience what you have for us in that moment, whether it's the challenging of a thought or whether it's, it's the rewriting of a soundtrack, whether it's opening up and sharing with a friend. Father, what we want is each person where they're at. I'm asking that you would start to untangle these things in their souls. And that you, Lord, would fill them to the full. Fill them to the brim, Lord, with these gospel soundtracks about your love for us, about your forgiveness, about your grace and your mercy, and about our position as your children, princes and princesses in the royal kingdom. Lord, we want these things to be more and more true of us. 
we know they're true in your sight. We're praying, Lord, that we would believe them and embrace them more fully and completely. Lord, turn over the lies that we believe. Turn over, Lord, the cruelty. Turn it around so that we might experience what it means to walk with you again in the cool of the garden. These kingdom principles here in our lives, Lord, this is what will make us increasingly people who are attractive to those who are far from you. That's what we want. So that we might know you and love you more fully and completely, that we might know and love people more fully and completely. This is who we want to be, that we might tell of your goodness, of your mercy, of your forgiveness to a world so desperately in need of it. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.